Hello, my name is Lucy Ripova, and I'm the founder and host of Think with Lucy. I started this podcast to discuss interesting topics with people who have different viewpoints. Why? In the age of social media, our news feeds are creating echo chambers that confirm our bias, making us less tolerant of other opinions. And this increases social and political polarization and leads to extremism. Seeing different perspectives helps you to understand things in a different light and helps us come together. It strengthens the democratic foundations of our country. Let's highlight the gray area that is often overlooked. Let's show nuance. Let's think. So today I'm sitting down with Andres Gilarte, a political activist for the freedom of Venezuela. In 2019, he left uh, Venezuela to work with the Cato Institute in Washington, D.C., and currently serves as a research associate for WPA Intelligence. And Emerson Murphy, a second-year politics and economics student at the London School of Economics and a student activist and a socialist. So hello, both. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Hello, Lucy. Thank you so much for having me. Hi, thanks for having us. Cool. So before we dive into the discussion, let's start with defining terms like socialism, capitalism. Right. I think a lot of people just throw this term into the discussion without really agreeing on what it means. So to me, socialism is political and economic system where the government controls major means of production. Communism is oftentimes used interchangeably with socialism. I think there are a few differences. Like, in my opinion, I think with communism, The system takes place by force, you know, whereas in socialism, I think the leader gets elected by the people and actually has the popular support, right? What What are your thoughts on those two terms, socialism, communism? Well, the, in, in theory, socialism is the, you know, the, the political, the, like you said, the political economic system, but I also include a philosophical system and cultural system because usually goals of socialism cannot be met without also the the, the cultural part and the philosophical part that they're trying to make for example you have to define it like you know and you can speak about the economic system well it's an economic system that promotes the collectivization of the means of production instead of being like in the capitalist center kind of economic system where The, the means of production are owned by the capitalists. In the socialist uh, theory, they are owned by the workers, you know, by the proletariat. Uh, so you that's the main core, at least in the economic side, that the means of production, they have to be collectivized. There is the, you have to hold it within theories, between uh, socialism as to why they should be owned by the workers. So, but when you go beyond not just the economic side, but also you start entering the human side, the cultural side, the philosophical side. It also promotes a world where you're not going to have a series of elements that are there. I believe that are part of the human nature and you can raise. So you're trying to become a better man, a better, when I mean man, you're not just masculine, you know, as a, as a whole, a better human being. And you're trying to reach that point of human nature that you're going to uh, For example, there's not going to be more envy, there's not going to be other elements. And that's unreachable because one of the main things that we understand is that human nature is unchangeable. 
through the whole human history. So trying to change human nature is kind of difficult, especially we are trying to change it based on the premise that, you know, that the, the reason why many, every single one of the problems that is going on in human history is because there, is, there has also been a relation between, you know, for example, the, the, the slave owner and the slave, in this case, the capitalist and the proletariat. So there is many things that we can spoke about socialism as to why and the means of production need to be in the hand of the, of the, of the worker. But then that's the core economic side. And in the terms of communism, like you said, yes, communism is, I will say that there is very few thinkers that they call us a communism nowadays because communism, we have, we, we, we think about Lenin, we think about Stalin, we think about the Soviet Union, we think of, it with, yeah, of a system that yes, you, you have to get rid of to, to force because you don't vote your way through communism. But there is a strong case as that communism is the endpoint of socialism. So there is many elements that we can go deeper as to, and we have actual examples in, in a world or a country that is more close to a communist kind of system and one that is more close to a socialist kind of system and the difference that they are within them. And that there is a case that communism doesn't have to be the, the end of socialism. Socialism can be an end to itself without having to go to communism. Emerson, would you agree with this? Um, yeah, so I would say just on a basic level, there's the usual definition you hear for and around, which is that socialism involves the collectivization of collective ownership of the means of production, distribution, and exchange. That's the strict definition, but in in in, in reality, socialism is a very broad tradition with lots of different trials of thought. It's essentially about yeah, collectivization of the means of production fundamentally. To me, I would prefer to emphasize a, a definition which which talks about extending democracy from the political sphere to the economic sphere. So that means that democracy is not just a, a value that we adhere to when we say go and vote every four or five years. It's something that we experience and partake in every day in the economic sphere as well, because at the end of the day, that is where an, an enormous portion of our lives are, are, are played out. As, as to the, the link between socialism and communism, yeah, socialism, according to, to a kind of kind of to Marxist thought is the transitional step away from capitalism and towards the end goal of communism. Communism being the utopian, classless and stateless, importantly, society, where we've gotten rid of all, all kinds of exploitation. Importantly, that there, there is a misconception that communism is just when the state does everything and, and that, say, countries in the Eastern Bloc, Soviet Union, Eastern Europe, etc., were some sort of communist regime. While they were nominally communist, that the, the, the political parties would call themselves communist parties, they would probably admit themselves that that, that was not communism. Communism being probably almost a, a, as far removed from, from those, the, the societies that existed in those countries at the time, especially given that communism it, it would be stateless without a state. And just one more point, Andres touched on culture and how human nature is supposedly unchangeable. 
I would disagree on that last point. I, I think that human nature is actually a product of our environment and to a large extent, a result of the, the mode of production that, that prevails within a given society. Humans are in fact highly malleable, changeable and adapt to our circumstances. We are at, at, on the one hand capable of acts of extreme kindness, of love, of altruism, but at the same time acts of immense harm, genocide, etc. And there are examples of both throughout history. So I think we should stay away from this idea that human nature is, is a kind of single homogenous, unchangeable, un unchangeable body of, of characteristics. But fundamentally, isn't it human nature that prevents socialism from succeeding? I think it is. I think people are fundamentally selfish and greedy. And if you look at history, every time a leader promised, you know, equality and free access to education, healthcare, he was the leader who made profit from his citizens. He wasn't the leader who cared about what his people were feeling or thinking. So why is it? Why do we always elect those types of people? And as you described, there are people who are bad and there are people who are good. Why don't we elect people like you, for example? Then? Well, you, you talk about how sort of human nature is the, the reason why socialism historically or historical cases of socialism have, have failed. For that to be the case, human nature has to be this homogenous, homogenous idea of, and, and and you take a very pessimistic view of of human nature, which is which is fair enough. There are lots of cases of human beings acting in very selfish, self-serving, and cruel ways. But th there's also the opposite. So I think I, I would challenge the first assumption behind the question, which is that human nature is this single, unchanging entity. And, and as a result, humans can be kind of adapt to their situation. So within a capitalist society, of course, people are going to be selfish. Of course, people are going to act in ways that in, in which they, they're incentivized because otherwise we cannot survive. Whereas, in my opinion, that those, those traits of, of, of human nature that we see today are, in fact, you know, not unchanging and, and can be shaped. Andres, do you think that if we elected Emerson <laughs> to be the leader of, of uh, whatever country, someone who is good and, you know, well-intentioned, like Emerson, I'm sure he is, do you think that socialism could work? Well, if I have to choose between Chavez and Emerson, <laughs> I think that the option is pretty clear. Yeah. Um, you know, I think that socialism, and, and, and not just the, the theory, we have to think about the those who call themselves socialists, like Emerson, that have amazing friends that they call themselves socialists, that some of them I knew when I used to call myself one too. And you know, there, there is pretty good people that they they, they see socialism like Emerson is saying, you know, a, a charitable system that if you if you create the right context, new generations will have a new way of looking at things. And then once we have been looking at since we, we are been living in a capitalist, capitalist society. And there is many elements to that. Um, and by, by the, by totally, I mean, I think that even though I don't like socialism, if someone likes socialism, 
I mean, they, they are completely free to believe in socialism. And if a country wants to choose to be socialist, they can be socialist. If a town decides to be socialist, they can be socialist. But it is kind of interesting that in every single way, shape, or form that it has to be tried, that has it has tried along the history of not just countries, but uh, lower political structures that a country, it has always failed. You can make the argument that, you know, the capitalist society is something really hard to, to destroy and that, you know, greediness and selfishness, they're, they're really hard to go against when, when you're living in a, in, a, in a place like this, you know, the, the, the meta structures, capitalism, you know, it's really hard to, to, to fight against because you can create a country that is socialist, but you can't detach yourself from the reality of the world that is also a capitalist reality. I think that all of that, you can make an argument about that, but it's unchangeable that you had places like in Venezuela, you had, you know, distant towns where socialism has been implemented fairly and squarely in places where you can make the experiment that they, that they are detached from the rest of reality of the world. And it just doesn't work. It doesn't work because what I mean that the human nature is unchangeable, I don't mean that it's not malleable by the context. Of course, it can be malleable by the context. The context can pretty much impact the way you perceive the world. But there are elements within each one of ourselves that it, it doesn't matter how you call the context we're living in. They appear, you know, selfishness, that is an anti-value that is always, it will always be part of human nature. I mean, people were feeling selfishness, selfish uh, 1,000, 2,000, 2,000 years ago, because that's part of our, of our nature. That is an anti-value that appears in, in a given moment. And you, you can take it to a, to a to a X or Y action. And the same with other, with other values. Uh, we are elements between our nature. Now, that's different for, from culture and other elements, the way you perceive things. You can change that. But you can't erase, erase selfishness. You know, that may sound pessimistic, way of looking at things and we can we were starting to get into into over philosophical terms. I, I don't I don't agree with the with, with the sense of other, you know, that the idea that the man is good and the context is the one that changed it to, to being a bad person. I that's that I don't think that's true. I think that people they're neither bad or good. We just are born the way we are. And the context, yes, can it can impact the way we are and that we have to create better societies. That's, well, do we agree with Emerson? But even in, in great societies and better societies, like you have in other countries, you also have people that they had anti-values. So it, there's many, many elements in the world right now and the reality we're living in that they can give the, the conclusion that it doesn't matter the context. Human nature, it is in general. Andres, you said that you used to be a socialist when you were younger. And when yes. you entered college, you changed your mind. You grew up in socialism. What was socialism like when you were younger? Was it much different than what it is now? Was it why you were a fan of socialism? Because your life was good? Or was it because you didn't know anything else? Well, I actually, well, I didn't grow up in socialism. I was born in 1994. So I, I, I grew up before Chavez was, was, was elected. But of course, the Venezuela of the 90s was not that the epitome of, of capitalism in the world. But we were living a 
pretty kind of capitalist way of world. I mean, Venezuela's in the 70s, 70s and 90s. It was the, the pearl of the, Cari- of the Caribbean, right? So, but I, I was born in a family system where I, I, I never met my father. I, I was born, uh, raised by a single mom. So I, I grew up with, you know, some struggles here, some struggles there. But life was, my childhood was amazing. I mean, by, by my first seven, eight years of my life, I mean, you can see the result of having a mom that if she finds the right job, because my mom didn't actually have high school or college. She never finished any of that. But she she had some pretty good skills in administration. So she, she was able to find jobs as secretary and stuff like this. So in a system like it was in Venezuela in those years, I I, I had a pretty good life. And I, I never actually felt the need of not of having a father in the house. But the thing that made me be a socialist was that, and this is really specific to the Venezuelan context, resentment is the main, you, you can't understand Chavism and Madurism without the word resentment, because that's what surrounds the whole motivation of socialism in Venezuela. And just a quick, quick going through the history, we have 40 years of democracy between the 658 and 98. That's when Chavez was elected. That's the only 40 years of democracy in Venezuelan history. And we had, uh, we were supposed to have an open party system, but the, the, the force of the, of the context led that it always was a bipartisan system between these two parties. One that it was self-defined as social democrat, democrat, and the other was self-defined as Christian democrat. But in reality, in terms of, polit- of politics, they were pretty similar to the left. The only reason we were actually having a boom is because we had oil. So we were receiving billions and billions of, of money. So the thing is that those two parties, they were, in those four years of democracy, they were like going really hard against the Communist Party of Venezuela, against the Socialist parties uh, in Venezuela. So, and one of the reasons is that those parties were aligned to the Soviet, so the Soviet idea that democracy was not, that it was not the system they had to go through. So they were always finding the ways to overthrow democracy. The thing is that in the late nineties, those parties, they, without getting too deep, they, they, they went really hard against those, those two, those parties in the, in the lab. So there was a really hard resentment from the people in those parties against every part of the system. As soon as Chavez saw the opportunity to win, and when you see Chavez's speeches and everything, he really hypnotized his followers to hate on the bipartisan system before, to hate on the same two parties, because, hey, everything that was going through, it was because of these people, because of the capitalist system, because of the, of the, of the treaty that, the Washington Treaty that was one of the, of the paradigmas in the 90s, at least in Latin America and Latin America, in terms of free market reforms. So Chavez was, as always, socialist leaders, they had to create an enemy. They had to create someone to blame to for everything they're doing, everything that's happening. Usually it's the capitalist system. And in case, in the case of Venezuela, it was these two parties. So all the followers of Chavez, it was not like, hey, we love socialism. That's for following Chavez. It's like, it was more like, we have to pay revenge of these people. So the people that had struggles in the 90s, they blamed the two parties. When Chavez appeared, they just wanted to be, to wear field resentment against the partisan system. And they just wanted to go against that. Chavez got a coup. He, he suffered a coup in 2001. Which failed, and that just that just threw gasoline in that because it was more to the idea that this is 
to blame the, the people that are trying to make a coup against me, the same two parties, the empire, the U.S. So, I mean, we, we, I, I can make a, two hours of it, but we, we, can, we have to understand resentment that is a big part of why people were following Chavez, because they hated the previous system. And that was the case in my family. Many, many people in my family, including my mom at that time, they just, they just hated it, the, first two, the first two parties. So no one in my family was like, yes, we have to follow Mark's teachings because that's the way we have to change human nature. No one was speaking about socialist theories. It was just like, we have to follow Chavez because he's the guy that is going to take us beyond the big part of the system that we were living before. And Chavez was pretty good about like with, with wars. I mean, he had his way with wars. So yeah, well, I was following whatever my mom was saying. Uh, my mom used to go to Chavez concentrations. I went to, to with her. I, I I actually joined her in the biggest concentration that Chavez had in Venezuelan history. It was like almost two million people in the street. I was in that concentration in 2010. I think it was 2011. And I, I was going through all of that. And I never, never in any given time was I speaking purely about the theory. It was more about how can we destroy the other, the other people? How can we destroy the, the people from the two parties? But it was, there were conversations in the, in the theoretical level, but that was not my case. My case was just like following the lead of me, people in my, in my, in my family until I entered college, met other people and realized that the motivation I had with socialism was not that, not only that, yeah, I wanted to help people and all of this, but it was more resentment against something. And that is not only toxic to your life, you can, I mean, you can't, resentment can be your motivation to do things, and especially not the motivation behind a political system. But I realized that, hey, if I wanted to help people, there is better ways to do that in terms of systems, and and, and we can get into that. But yeah, that, that was like the main reason why I was a socialist. I was, resentment was the reason why I was a socialist. Emerson, what is your reason? The, the reason that I'm a yeah. socialist? I think whenever whenever anyone asks me that question, there is one outstanding reason above all else, and that's that if we do not embrace collective solutions to the problems that we face, specifically climate change, then the world as we know it will cease to exist. We talk about market failures, right? Climate change is the greatest and most extreme market failure, failure of capitalism that this world has ever seen. And if we continue with the status quo, we will not be able to go back because we will reach these tipping points where, where backtracking is just simply not possible. There was a, a, the IPCC report, I think, that came out in 2018, said that we have 12 years to take the necessary action to, to limit global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius. We now have eight years on our current levels of emissions we are on track to experience something more like three or four percent global warming by 2100 which is absolutely catastrophic the 70 largest companies are responsible for about half of all global emissions the the way in which the system encourages this kind of uh, selfishness that we were talking about earlier is a, a direct cause of of this global warming this the, this system by which we are incentivized not to take into account the social cost of say emitting greenhouse gases but for me that's that's the strongest reason and nothing but collective solution, solutions 
to global warming are capable of even making a scratch on the surface of, of that as, as a global problem. I'd just like to come back and, and, and not, not to mention so many of the other issues, but whether we talk about inequality of income, wealth, access to healthcare, education, basic services, but I'm sure we'll come into that later. Um, I just So sorry. yeah, on your point on climate change, how would you fix it with socialism? Well, that, that's a very large question. Well, um, you, you said that capitalism doesn't I, have the solutions. So how will socialism have the solutions? So first of all, we need to stop emitting em, emitting carbon, right? So we, we, emit, we emit carbon primarily in, in a number of ways. So first of all, you know, I mean, look at our energy production. We need to shift rapidly to renewable-based energy production. The, the market just simply cannot do that fast enough. We see new coal-fueled power plants being built in, in, in countries all over the world. This needs to stop. This needs to be regulated. These need to be regulated out of existence immediately. The state needs to come in with a, essentially planning, frankly, that, that, that word has gone out of, out of fashion for a number of reasons. But this needs to be planned from the center to essentially yeah, move away from fossil fuels and massively increase the uh, amount of renew renewable energy that we have on the grid that that can only be done at, at, at the scale and pace we we require it by the government I, I mean we can come into specifics at, at some point I, I just wanted to come back on on some points that Andres made he talked about and and first of all have an enormous amount of respect for every everything you, you, you talk about with regards to your experiences and the experience of, of, of Venezuela because it is truly a, a, a tragic humanitarian catastrophe and it's and for that reason it's obviously worth getting to the bottom of, of the reasons for for why that came, came about the two decades before Chavez came to power were you know two decades of, of economic decline between 1980 and the mid-1990s, per capita income shrank by 20%, the mil real minimum wage shrank by 60%, poverty doubled. So it's it's not surprising, I guess, that, that this popular discontent led to the breakdown of the two-party system and that resentment. Now, encouraging that resentment, as, as you mentioned, is, is potentially very negative uh, and can lead to very negative tendencies i'm just making the point that it, it's understandable that that people felt that resentment this kind of promulgation of this resentment as as, as at the kind of heart of a an antagonistic left populist politics that that chavez kind of came to embody i think he said did say something along the lines of socialist leaders have to find something to hate in order to sell, sell their politics to an extent, yeah, there, there are lots of cases where socialist leaders ha have done just that. I wouldn't say that's exactly a, a socialist trait, although, of course, within, say, Marxism, there are these inbuilt contradictions that cannot be ignored. To me, it's more of a populist thing that you can see on the left, on, on the right, and even in the centre. It's this, the people versus the, the other. So you saw that in, in Venezuela, obviously with the mobilization against the pre-existing two-party system and political elite against uh, so-called US imperialism, etc. You always have the people against, against the others. And, and you see that in, in contexts all over the world. You see it in the UK and the US, 
when politicians on the right mobilize against the most vulnerable in society, whether that's refugees or, or trans people or, you know, so, so many others. So that kind of antagonism, I think, is inherent to politics of all stripes. And I don't think can be put just down to socialism. So in my presentation, and I, and I think Emerson mentioned that he saw work. That's the point I make. I mean, it is absolutely understandable why someone in 1998 believed that Chavez was the right option when you're looking back at the last, I wouldn't say two decades, I would say the last 10 years before that. And that Chavez was the, the better option. And even, even that the, the situation was not the best, Chavez didn't won by 70%. He, he barely, barely reached uh, beyond 55%, uh, which, you know, in other countries, the, the way Venezuela was going down, he could easily have been 70%. So with, without getting into, into, into actual numbers in elections, yes, you're right. The first evaluation of, of the Venezuelan currency didn't happen on the challenge. That happened under Luis Herrera Campins in, in if I don't remember, uh, born is 1981 which is known as in Venezuelan history as the Black Friday, is the first time we devaluated our currency. And that happened under a social democratic country, well, sorry, party, it didn't happen under Chavez. Many other things happened in those, in those, within those uh, years that had no relation to Chavez uh, and to socialism overall, because there is a pretty good strong craze of how socialism was being implemented at a lower level in all those years in Venezuela. I mean, there was a collectivization of many, 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 many things. And since the point that we nationalized the oil industry in 1976, that's one of the strongest cases of how we took the, the means of production, the main means of production in Venezuela from foreign companies to, to be in the hands of the state, which in, in relation, being in the hands of the state, symbolized being in the hands of the people because the state should be the people, which actually never never is the case. No, it doesn't matter if it's the left or the right. I mean, the, the state is never the people. So, and I agree, populism is the, the main catalysator of the left in, the, in Latin America and the right in many countries. Uh, George W. Bush, I mean, what, it, what was the, the, the enemy? The war on terror. And the war on terror was, a, was, to, was to blame of everything that was going on in, 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 the, in the U.S. Uh, under Trump, it was the, the illegals. I mean, illegals are to blame for everything that is happening in the, in the country. Uh, even right now, I mean, illegals are the, the source. I mean, it, it, everything that's going bad is because people are crossing the border because they can't, they can't eat in their countries. Of course, that's the reason. And, you know, there is, you're right. There is always someone in politics or all that you have to blame someone. So, and my job is part of that. I mean, being working in polling and in elections overall, you had to create a message. You had to create a message against something. You have to fight against something and you have to be for something. And that's something I, I think is terrible. We should be more focused on the for we are uh, instead of the against we are. But that's that's part of politics overall. Now, in the case of Venezuela, it was way beyond just a, uh, an election. It was way beyond just politics. It was brought to the core of the Venezuela of, of Venezuelan people. That's why I, I spoke about the cultural part. I mean, you can literally hear a fisherman in the most big, far away town in Venezuela 
blaming Trump and the U.S. for everything that is going on, if he that is happening to him and every, and everything, blaming the same people that are already dead from the parties in the in the nineties for everything that is happening, and and it was not only because, uh, resentment against those; it was a resentment in the case of Venezuela was the opposite of the U.S. against the immigrants from from Europe. I mean, Chavez was pretty pretty common to to hear that. We have to take the businesses um, with the means of production from the people of, the, of Europe. I mean, how come that we, we the ones born, born in Venezuela, are not the ones that have the, the means of? And that's a pretty. I mean, Trump will will love what, what what he was saying that foreigners should not be the ones owning the means of in Venezuela. But that was something that Chavez was saying. You can see pretty similarities in in, in those kind of things. But yes, populism is, I think, the worst part. In politics, you need, yes, you need to fight against something. That's something that because that usually people are more moved against that in Ford. That's a, that's basically the reason why Biden won. People just voted against Trump, especially the Republicans that voted for Biden. They voted against Trump. You need it against in politics. But when you take that to the core of many other things, that's when you start, you know, corrupting the, the, the system you're living in. That's what happened in Venezuela and Cuba. And any other things. And if we can just go back to the climate change, which is a, a subject that I really like to. I mean, what what will Emerson say, for example, of a country like China that uh, is on? I think that no one can say that China has any kind of individualized political system. Everything is absolutely collectivized by the state, and they are responsible for, I think, almost forty percent of the world pollution. In uh, basically comes from China. How is more collectivism going to change the way China is basically killing the, the world? So yeah, no, we can talk about China. I mean, China is a country of 1.3 billion people. So when you look at emissions per capita, China is far below emissions per capita of Australia, Western European countries, and and of course the US, Canada. So when taken within in proportion china per person is a smaller part of the problem than other countries now that's not to say that china is without fault i'm certainly no advocate of the chinese state it's an incredibly authoritarian state you know with countless human rights violations etc etc undemocratic we we know that but while you know china is uh, building coal-fired power plants and is still a very large emitter. It's also one of the countries that are actually investing the most in clean energy and the shift away from carbon-based fuel. When you look at the number of trees that have been planted, the extraordinary high-speed rail links that connect Chinese cities hundreds and hundreds of miles away, such that travel is extremely easy between the two without having to fly or, or, or drive it, within an hour or two is, is incredible. And it's something that European and definitely the European countries and definitely the US have not managed to achieve. So there are, there are pros and cons. China, of course, is a big problem. I, I certainly do not advocate a, a system, anything like what we see in China. It's an authoritarian state, just as Venezuela is, is an authoritarian state. And I'm no supporter of Hugo Chavez. To me, socialism is, is about democracy and ex- extending democracy as a, a fundamentally good principle to as many areas of life as possible. Um, that is the opposite of what we see in China. That said, we there are certainly some positives that we need to to, to recognize that, uh, that that come out of China when it comes to climate change. But obviously, they have a huge amount 
a, a huge way to go when it comes to tackling climate change, just as we all do. That said, when you look, uh, take a historic view, look, I mean, look at the UK. Not, not, not completely sure about this. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty confident that the UK historically has emitted more, more carbon into the atmosphere than any other country with you know, the UK industrialising first, with the Industrial Revolution, and continuing to be a very large uh, emitter to this day. We have used many times over the, the carbon budget, if you like, that we, we deserve. And the same goes for almost every other Western European state and the, the US as well. So when we compare ourselves to developing countries like China or India, who for, for centuries have been under the boot of Western colonialism and imperialism are only now starting to develop. If we say, oh, it looked, the problem is not us, even though we've been emitting for hundreds and hundreds of years, hundreds of years longer than, than these countries are only starting to develop and achieve a, an adequate standing standard of living, they're the problem. You have to decarbonize before us. To me, that's, there's a serious moral issue with that uh, ethical issue. We have a historic, we, we bear a, a disproportionate amount of the historic blame for climate change and, and we should be doing it at, it first. And when people like us who live in countries like the UK and the US talk about climate change, of course, we're going to um, look at our own governments first because that's where we have the most influence. So I think the redirection of the focus towards countries like China and India is counterproductive personally because one, we don't have influence there. Two, we should sort, sort our own countries out first and that there are some serious positives with countries like china so you said the solution is to decrease emissions let's say if if right now you were to be the head of the government and to make decisions what 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 would your planning look like how would you decrease emissions would you close down factories would you increase the production of solar cells um would you you know incentivize the creation of solar or wind farms, how would you do it? Right. I mean, a lot of what you just said there needs to happen. I mean, we need a an enormous Green New Deal where the state takes a central role in directing the very, very rapid decarbonization of our economy. Mm-hmm. Now, that practically could involve things like nationalizing the energy companies. Uh, so in the UK, where, where, where we are, say BP, for example, BP would have to be nationalized with the state directing the redirection of the, the resources that BP controls, currently exploits for the production of things like oil and gas, or oil, and petroleum is oil, I guess, so of fossil fuels, those resources would, would have to be put to use in developing green energy, renewable energy, that the state would have to fund and incentivize the massive expansion of things like wind power, solar, or, you know, it, it all has to happen. I don't think we can leave any stone unturned. And the most irresponsible thing, in my view, would be to sit back, for the state to sit back. And, and we're talking this day here. We're not, we're not, this is, this has to happen in the next 10 years, right? So, so this is very much within the context of, of the state and the state having to take a leading role in this. So, if we were to sit back, to me, that given the enormity of the challenge, that would be incredibly irresponsible. Basically, all, all of what you mentioned has to happen. Well, obviously, to finance all these incentives, you need to increase spending and you need to increase debt. And I think we could make an analogy, Andres, with Venezuela and what happened in, in the early 2000s, where 
you know, Chavez was financing uh, the social packages first with the production of oil. And it was working until the oil price dropped significantly, right? And and then he didn't have enough money to finance all these initiatives that he started. And what resulted was a huge hyperinflation, lack of access to food, medicine, and all the necessities and so on. So w- when you hear Emerson talk about his initiative, what are the limitations maybe that he should consider, if there are any? Well, I think... Venezuela is a terrible example in how we can create green green energy policies. I mean, Chavez at any never, never in any point of, of his of his life saw the way the, the idea that we have to use the oil industry to move towards a more in green energy. That that just never happened. I mean, we always depended on oil. He, to the point where they destroyed the whole industry for many mismanagement uh, reasons, but to the core of the question, no, that, that, that was never the case in Venezuela. So, so Venezuela is a terrible example of green, green energy, and not just in terms of the of the looking at the industries of, of oil and green energy, it also in the terms of deforestation. I mean, Venezuela, uh, the, the regime doesn't care at all about, or for example, we have the main, one of the main uh, status in Venezuela that had, uh, has a lot of the oil drillings and everything is is one of the is in, in the state of Bolivar, and it's it's, a, it's an area where they basically they completely destroyed the environment in those places for the sake of drilling more and more oil. But it was not just oil. I mean, it, it, everything that were was going on mining, uh, gold, iron, everything. Because we, we Venezuela is a terrible example for every of that. Because we don't even use the oil for ourselves. I mean, we had we went from producing millions and millions of barrels per day to right now we only produce seven hundred thousand barrels per, per day, and we have the biggest oil reserves in the world, and we are one of the worst in terms of production and refining in, in those in those areas. But we just allow foreign companies and foreign states to drill in those areas, to and they just take the raw product uh, to their countries. That is in the, in the Faja del Orinoco, forgive me, I don't know how to pronounce that in English, or what is the translation exactly. But we have African companies that they're, they're getting some share of that. We have the Russians, we have Iranians, we have Chinese, we have many other, many, many countries that are sharing how to destroy our, our environment in Venezuela. So Venezuela, I would never put it as, as an example to anything that related to green energy. Going back to, to the case of China, the reason I ask is not just to get the impression. Of course, I will never believe that Emerson advocates for anything that comes from the Chinese government. But I do agree that in, when you when you have the complete control of a society like the, the Chinese state has, it is pretty pretty easy to change to any kind of energy. I mean, they can change to blue energy if that exists, if they want to, because they had the complete complete control of the society. In a in a socialist and communist society, meta changes like that of switching industries like like that is way easier than in a, in a in a in a system like america where you have to go through many levels of democracy you have to go through many levels of different views to make any kind of choice in anything the same will be impossible in, in, in the in the US. i mean one of the plans of biden is to if i remember correctly by 2035 to stop using coal and stop using coal fuel vehicles and just completely change to electrical vehicles. That's just that's just not going to happen. 
from a standpoint of state point of view, because that doesn't work in the in the democratic system in the US and any other kind of democratic system, unless the, the huge majority of the population is completely on board in those kind of things. And that's not, not, not the case in the US because here everything is politicized. So electrical vehicles means, you know, uh, socialism or whatever. The US it has many problems in the cultural side, but I, I agree. A country like China, they are doing great policies in terms of the climate. Uh, at the stake of the people, at the stake of everything else. And I, I don't think that's necessarily the way things should happen, because if you assume, and there is a strong argument of why, that the climate is the most pressing issue of human history right now, you can easily say that, you know, if the end is to, to tackle that, well, there is no problem in adopting a more statewide policy taking over industries, you know, nationalizing things, increasing the debt, therefore increasing inflation, therefore increasing the prices of everything. People, you, they're not going to like that. I'm pretty sure there's people don't like that in China, but they can't say anything because they're in China. You can't have a, a policy like that in the U.S. You, have, you can't implement wide policies like that. They're basically a chart policy uh of switching energies and switching many things because people are not gonna like that and unfortunately and that also goes to the way of how, why human nature changes doesn't changes is that there is at the core of the of the of the nature of the us you can make policies like that i completely agree that climate change is a huge problem electrical vehicles should be the way i completely agree that we have to get away from coal we don't need coal, coal anymore we and we have to switch actually to nuclear power at least for the time being, until we actually get to the point where we are completely dependent only on solar and wind. That should be the long-term goal. But Our that's nuclear not going to happen in the US for the state. Of the, what? Our nuclear fusion. Uh, yeah, that's like the short goal. But the long-term goal should be solar and wind. I mean, that that, that has to be the goal. We have to rely on, 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 this, on, this, um, on solar energy. Uh, but that's not going to happen from, and definitely, I mean, if, they, if, if the world's going to end in any years, we just start seeing how we're going to move to Mars, because that's not going to happen in eight years, at least not in the U.S., and it's just not going to happen. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, if you look at central planning, Emerson, you are a fan of socialized healthcare and, and socialized education, right? Something like the NHS, yeah. Something like the NHS. Andres, can you speak about the promises that Chavez made, you know, when he was in power, when it comes to socialized healthcare and education and what actually happened and why it didn't work out? Well, first of all, access. I mean, the main goal of socializing this healthcare and education is to make sure that everyone has access mm -hmm. to it, right? If you if you follow a pattern of just market, market incentive incentivizations, Sometimes you, it's not profitable to, to take education to a really far away town where people don't have money. So when the state has the means of, 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 of leading education, leading healthcare, they can achieve, you know, that every single person in the country has access to that. Mm -hmm. I agree with the, with the premise that everyone should have access independently of their income or their zip code, their, their ethnicity, whatever. There shouldn't be any reason why a kid doesn't have access to quality education and quality healthcare. That should be the norm. And at least in the US, if we start spending, you know, 10% of what we spend in the military, we can achieve that goal. 
So I don't disagree with the premise that we need to have a system that everyone can have access to. And what Chavez did, he would try to have access to everyone, to education and healthcare, but everyone had have access to that in Venezuela, but it's like the worst possible quality that you can ever imagine in your life. So he tried that by many means. So one of the things that was popular in Venezuela was to call social programs missions. So you have many missions. You have uh, Simon Rodriguez's mission, which was to uh, alphabetize the whole country. So he, he, that was a mission. So you have means from the state to reach that mission. Uh, you create an, an institute and, and X or Y. You have the, in the healthcare industry, we had the agreement with Cuba where we were basically giving oil back for uh, doctors and nurses and all kind of people from Cuba that they were coming to our uh, missions that had to do with healthcare. So you will have clinics around the country, especially in, in, in low income areas. I, I, I was born uh, in Petare. Petare is one of the, the biggest, uh, actually, uh, so you can understand the biggest slum, slums in, in, in Latin America. So I was directly benefit from one of those or from many of those missions. My first classes came from one of the, of the Chavez missions. And there is a case to make that, yes, that, that was helpful until the point where it was no longer helpful, either because the, the spending was going crazy, because we were spending like crazy with healthcare, because the spending was not being efficiently uh, used, because one thing is just to spend and to, create, and to, uh, to use the money, and other thing is like where that money goes, where is it allocated. In, it's supposedly, when you're in a socialist system, you have more control of every single level of decision-making, because that's one of the goals of socialism, is like to make a democracy more accessible. And if you make democracy accessible, you make everything that comes from the state accessible, in this case, the missions. That didn't happen in Venezuela. I mean, we reached a point where the clinics that Chavez was creating, they were more preventive kind of uh, healthcare. It was not like if you get a fracture, they're going to fix the fracture. They were like trying to avoid you from getting worse. If you got a stomach disease, uh, if you were in the case that you needed something surgery or you needed so you know, um, to enter a, a, a intensive care, they don't have those kind of things because it was only preventive care. And many of those doctors, they were there against their will because they didn't want it to, to be part of the systems. They were forced from Cuba to do to, to be part of that. So Chavez achieved achieve accessibility. Everyone had access in Venezuela to any some form of healthcare and education, but it's the worst quality possible because the resources are not being used the way they are. Uh, the directions come through directly from a state, uh, from a central view in Caracas instead of in the specific needs of every single local level. And if you don't agree with what's going on, you will be going to prison. So that's basically the summarize. Emerson, how would your system work? How would you manage to efficiently allocate resources if it's going to be central, centrally planned? Right. So first of all, I would agree with the first point that Andres made that healthcare should be a human right and that everyone should have access to, to healthcare. I didn't use the word human right. <laughs> 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 Sorry, I'm putting words in your mouth. That's, um, a, well, that's I, I will, an important difference. <laughs> sure. Okay. Well, I would say that. Um, yes, yes, would, yes. Right. So that's so not uh, on, on similar lines there, not, not exactly yeah. the same. So first of all, that there's, there's the obvious moral argument for it. So a system 
so every resource we ration in a, in in some way we might ration it using the market uh using some kind of other form of need-based rationing um etc healthcare is such a fundamental requirement to live a good life that it is i think a quite an obvious moral claim to make to say okay healthcare should not be rationed according to the market according to one's income how much you're going to afford to provision yourself with but rather it should be dished out according to need because you know people can't see their healthcare uh, costs coming down the line it's it's often very random you can't often plan for 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 say large healthcare costs and because it, it your your life is, is quite literally at stake so in terms of what an ideal system would be first of all it would have to be rationed according to need an obvious example of this would be the nhs now the nhs to, uh, is is so the uk obviously the nhs is the the uk's um healthcare system there are lots of imperfections in the nhs it's been at the forefront of 10 years of brutal austerity uh, by the way a very misguided and self-destructive policy that we saw after the 2008 uh, great recession it, it, it's seen enormous budget cuts it's seen reduction in uh, the, the number of staff uh, and funding towards training of new nurses and doctors which has had a very long-term and damaging um effects on yeah the 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 quality that can be can be provided even so we spend half of what the us spends per capita as a percentage of gdp on on healthcare and yet we get better outcomes when it comes to life expectancy and and according to many other metrics too and i i'm i'm not assuming that andres would particularly be a strong advocate of the US system because often those on the right have, 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 have their own criticisms of it. But, but that is an example of a highly dysfunctional system that a system like the NHS far, far surpasses. It, it's an example of state the state provisioning of, of healthcare according to needs that has lasted for about 70 years, you know, and, and has been an, an enormous uh, success story. And you compare that with somewhere like the US, where 31 million people lack health insurance, where they spend double what the UK spends per capita on healthcare, where half of, uh, is it half? I think it's about half of all, all that spending on the US healthcare system goes to 5% of the population. So there are enormous um, health inequalities. Prices for medicines are absolutely sky high and clearly a very dysfunctional system. So yeah, that that that's what I would say about healthcare. But I mean, w- with the Venezuela case, yeah, clearly there was the uh, exchange of, of of oil for Cuban doctors in order to provide some kind of like basic healthcare in poor parts of Venezuela. That I mean, clearly that's not a a system like the NHS. It's I, I think we probably should get get into sort of the Venezuelan case a bit a bit deeper in a minute. But I think. I think in and of itself, preventative care is an excellent thing. Clearly, it doesn't go far enough. And yeah, that I, I think that potentially was just a constraint of, of the Venezuelan case in particular. I, I think it is worth going into the, the reasons why um, Venezuela turned out as it did and whether or not we can put that all, all down to socialism. Because yeah, I have a couple of points to say there. But I, I don't know where you want to take it next. Yeah, Andres, do you have any any points on that? 
Uh, yes. So the reason why I wouldn't call healthcare a human right is because because if you call something a right, someone owns you that, right? In this case, the state. When you when we're saying that you know you have a human right, well, the state is the, the one that has to guarantee that you have your human your human right. If we're calling that healthcare is a human right, that means that the state has to guarantee that there is always going to be a, a doctor or someone that has to take care of you. I don't agree with that. I, I don't agree that, you know, the sole reason of, uh, of a doctor or a nurse has to be whatever the state says that we that has to go or not. Because, I mean, the, in the end, the job, the job of a doctor, yeah, they have to take the hypocritical uh, oath and everything. But they are the ones that decide where to work, uh, what to do, and, and everything else. We're, we're talking about human beings here. And the same with education. Right? You're, you're, you're basically going to force people to do something. And I, I agree that it has to be something, I, both healthcare education, that the state has to guarantee, but not as a human right, but just as, as, a, as a means like, we, we, we don't want kids to be homeless. We don't want kids to not have education. We need that to have a better society. We don't want kids that to, you don't want the life expectancy to go down, which in the US life expectancy went down this year again, and it's continuing to go down uh, for many reasons, just because healthcare is terrible. But but also because we have a, in the U.S. a pretty bad consumption idea of what people have to eat or not, and in many other reasons. But I don't. I will call it a, a right. I just it's a need from the society that has to be met, and people has to have a quality. But I don't think that it has to be directly managed by the by the state. I agree more with the Friedman kind of a, of idea that we need vouchers. So you need vouchers for healthcare, you need vouchers for education, which is something right now that is happening in the US is school choice. Uh, the movement for a school choice is to guarantee access to anyone independently of the zip code and that the money goes directly to the people instead of the, of the of terrible institutions because to, uh, the, the education system in the US is not only bad, it's not only bad in, in terms of, of the spending, but in terms of the management of that spending because the public education in the US is terrible. I mean, it's just, it's just Terrible. If I if I thought in Venezuela was bad, I mean here here is pretty much the only difference is that people are not praying for Chavez here, but their education in the U.S. is pretty bad quality, and that's what you get. And and who goes to those public educations? Of course, kids with with low income, and we're just per perpetuating the same cycle where they're not gonna get the education needed to get out of the low income area. Uh, they're just gonna perpetuate the same cycle. That's what we need: uh, quality education for people, and the best way for that is to take the money out from inefficient institutions managed by the state and just send the money directly to families. That's school choice, for example. That's something I agree with. It's a libertarian take of the problem with education and the same, exactly the same approach with healthcare. Emerson was saying, well, well one of the main problems with healthcare in the US is that we spend too much money inefficiently. I will say the words inefficiently. We could not only spend it better, but we can spend a little bit more. I agree that there is 31 million people that you know there is, don't have insurance. I didn't have insurance my first two years here in the U.S., and it was pretty bad. I mean, it's, it's, it's easy to just die instead of paying for something in the U.S., and it's way cheaper just to just flat die the street than paying for something here in the U.S. You enter a hospital and you have to pay over uh, 1500 uh, $1, in in just by entering the hospital. It, it doesn't even matter if they, if they take you or not. And people can afford that. I mean, that's that's why you have many people that that they just don't go for 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 having health insurance. If you are if you don't have papers in the U.S., if you're called illegal, it's way better just to not go to 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 get healthcare because there is many other reasons for that. So 
yes, the U.S. is terrible in healthcare, at least in the terms of management of, of the resources. But instead of quality, it's, it's just amazing. I mean, it's, it's uncomparable to what happens in, in, in Venezuela. In Venezuela, you have people literally dying for a simple infection because every single uh, level of healthcare is managed by the state, either directly in hospitals or indirectly by funding a clinic. And there is no resources because you don't have, you, you don't allow the institution, the healthcare institution, to solve their own problems. If you if you have a, a, a you, if you need more services here, but you have a provider that you want to use in X or Y or country or whatever, you can because you have to go through the means that the state is saying. So that's one of the problems with central uh, central planning and central management is that you you cut short the options for individuals and in this case institutions like clinics to find their own solutions, but you have to depend on whatever the central management and central planning is telling you to do. And that's a problem in Venezuela. I mean, you, when, you, when, when you get a fracture or whatever, you have to get your own resources and you, they're not gonna treat you in the hospital unless you bring the gloves that the doctors are gonna use, unless you bring the alcohol, unless you bring the bands, unless you bring everything because they don't have the resources. And of course, if the clinic doesn't have the resources, it's way harder for a person to find those resources. We're talking about people that spend $200, $300 trying to buy those things. If you see my Instagram, you're always going to see a story that I put for whatever people that, hey, my mom is in, in trouble. She needs money. And it's like the, the, that's the, the way people have to get money in Minnesota to try to, to get to access to healthcare. So I don't agree with central planning, central funding directly to institutions. I agree that if the money exists, it has to go directly for the people. So you can incentivize the competition in the institutions. And if you want to get the money that the people are getting from the state in vouchers, you have you do need to have quality, quality services and quality resources. If that system were implemented, you, you wouldn't have the problems we have in the US and Venezuela. So you compare, uh, clearly you agree that the, the US has some serious problems as well, but you can compare the US and, and, and Venezuela, but as an example of a kind of non-centrally planned uh, healthcare system versus one that is centrally planned. But, I, but there are also examples of very successful, more centrally planned healthcare systems. So let's compare Venezuela and the UK. You simply do not see the, the problems that you, you're, you're, you're talking about in, in, in the UK, in the context of the UK. So from that, I think, that, and there are obviously plenty of other examples of, of similar systems around the world that do work. So from that, I think we can rule out the claim that it's necessarily a product of central planning within healthcare. Um, that is the issue. As to the the voucher idea with education and healthcare, I think when it comes to educa- uh, sorry healthcare in particular, I think the the scope for competition is extremely limited because healthcare is a natural monopoly. When you break your leg, you're not going to go on sort of comp- comparison websites and and pick your your favorite hospital you're not going to as a consumer of healthcare if we can put it in those terms as someone who urgently needs medical care you are not in a position to shop around and and pick the best doctor nor are you in an, a position with the an adequate amount of knowledge to to make those kinds of choices instead what happens is that those with the greatest ability to pay the greatest ability to top up those those vouchers that can be used to pay for healthcare, end up end up essentially being able to afford the best doctors and taking the the best kind of healthcare resources, if you like, so doctors, best hospitals, etc., for themselves. So you still get enormous inequality within a system where you have 
a, a voucher scheme because I'm, I'm assuming that scheme in your mind would include a, a kind of ability for consumers to top up um, their vouchers. So, so with that, you, you start to infringe on this principle that it should be that healthcare should be rationed according to need and not to income. And you do not get away from this serious problem with inequality within a healthcare, healthcare system. Yeah, well, uh, of course, I didn't went to live with it. Uh, vouchers did, of course, if you get a fracture, that's the, that's the safety net. I mean, you're not gonna, you're gonna start shopping uh, while you're, you're fractured and you're just gonna go to whatever is nearby and just you try to get the best quality. I mean, the, the vouchers work, will work uh, as a preventive measure. You know, when you need regular exams, when you need a regular kind of healthcare, and even for those kind of things, not, not like emergency situations. In emergency situations, anything that you need, should, you, you should go whenever you can, and you're not going to pay a single a single dollar because that will be directly paid by, by, by and I don't, I don't like to say the work state. In that case, that will be directly paid by everyone because the state doesn't own resources. The state owns whatever the people own. So, that, of course, that doesn't happen. But, but hey, if you want to... Uh, I don't know if you want to win a, get an exam, see if you have cancer. Well, you, you will have your voucher and you can you can shop around and see whatever you want or, or this or why. Hey, about you don't like what the, what this, this doctor is telling you, where you can shop around, you can go somewhere else. And if you get to the point where you need emergency care, you, you're not going to need any voucher. You will have access to that. People should have access to that, especially low income people. I mean, you, you shouldn't be dependent on your income if you get into an accident. Now, I do believe that if you have way more income because you are wealthy, not because, uh, and that's really, it's really hard to make a distinction between someone that actually earned their wealth and someone that earned their wealth through the state, which is many of the case of millionaires here in the US that just get the, get the money directly from, from subsidies and tax reductions and all, other things. But if you have more income, of course, you, you get more options because you earn it. So yes, but you will get more advanced options. But if you don't have income, all the basic needs that you need should be completely care, taken care of by the money uh, that the contributors give. And the same with education. I mean, in education, well, you will have vouchers, you can shop around if you're a Jew, uh, if you're, I don't know, Muslim and you want to take your children to a kind of Muslim school, then you, you, you can shop around and have your money. But right now, if you're a Muslim and you've been a, you live in a zip code that is locked in a Catholic school where you, you just have to go there and there's no option for you that shouldn't be the case i mean I, I, people should shop around for the best quality education for their children especially if they don't have money to pay for that now if you're disconsciously if, if you have too much money well you have more options that's that's how the world the, 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 the world works if you want to take your children to study high school in the uk when you take your children to study high school in the uk and that's one of the reasons people want to, to be rich, because you have, you have more options. There has to be a, a distinction with, 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 between rich and not being rich. But in terms of the, the basic needs, everyone, everyone should have access to that. Even if you are not born in this country, you should have access to whatever things you need to have the, the, basic, the basic need to continue your life and achieve something. But that's not the case in the U.S. That's the, the, the case in the U.S. is terrible. We have a terrible mismanaged system, which I will, I will agree that it's it's not just a problem with central management. At least in the U.S., it is, and in Venezuela. But like you said, you have the U.K., you have Singapore, that it has one of the best healthcare in the world. That's a central system. You have South Korea, which is one of the best countries in the world, and that's also a central system. 
but that depends on, and, and I think depends on a case by case basis. I mean, the, the culture in South Korea and Singapore is <laughs> completely different than the American culture uh, and the Latin American culture. If, if we go through that, uh, I think that the UK and the, and the and the US is a way more similar culture, and there are still so many differences. But it's a it's a more relative that we can we can make a comparison between the two countries. But yes, there are better, way better countries around the world that have way better central management. But of course, they have better citizens, better culture, better idea of how to spend resources that we have here in the U.S. Cool. So I also wanted to cover income inequality because Emerson, you touched upon that earlier. I think it's a well-known fact that 99% of the resources are owned by the top 1% of people. You know, in the case of capitalism, who owns those resources are people who create products and services that are wanted by the people, right? In free markets, it's the usual supply and demand curve. In socialism, who owns the 1% is not the people who create products and services, but government planners, people who are in charge and make decisions as to how to allocate resources from the government. Do you think that income inequality is bad? Do you think that there should be no billionaires, uh, no people like Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos? And do you think there's a connection between income inequality and poverty? Because a lot of people can make the argument that, yes, we all know that wealth gaps have been increasing and they are quite extreme at this point, but poverty levels are going down. So what is your opinion on this? So... In income inequality, wealth inequality, as a general rule, yes, less less of it is a good thing. You have gen- generally, uh, I mean, if you, if you look at the US, compare it to your, your average Western European country, you have higher inequality in the US and more poverty. So I would disagree with that, that last point. Now, when it comes to sort of billionaires, I think... You have a couple of examples of very eccentric billionaires who everyone knows, Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, these sorts of of tech billionaires, I guess you could call them. Now, to answer your question, should there be billionaires? I, I think as a society, it is a legitimate question to ask, how rich should we allow people to be? Because with wealth comes an enormous amount of political power. And with political power, you have the ability to influence our democracies, which should be sort of uh, valued above all else, and to pursue your own interests in in order to make yourself even richer. So in order to influence legislation, regulation, uh, take advantage of tax tax loopholes, which can make yourself even richer. Every single billionaire, uh, a famous American billionaire, takes advantage of tax loopholes, They all take advantage of the political system by funding lobbyists to to a staggering extent. They, I I mean, if if you look at Jeff Bezos, there was actually very recently the first unionization of of an American Amazon warehouse. But that comes at the end of a a number of extremely long unionization efforts, many of which have been unsuccessful because Amazon spends just so much on on, uh, union busting campaigns and on union busting consultants. So the, the key point is with wealth it, it, and extreme wealth comes extreme power to suppress those below you, those with less, less wealth. 
and to influence the political system and democracy. I think th those are two of the strongest strongest points. Also, when when you command that those levels of wealth, you command enormous resources, right? I mean, if, if you have uh, if you're worth say ten billion billion dollars, if you were to spend a, a, even a small proportion of that, what you're essentially doing through the market is redirecting production within that economy for your own gain. And within society, we do have limited resources, especially within a context where we need to be directing those resources and our production towards fighting our sort of collective challenges such as climate change. And the minute you have an explosion of billionaires or multi-multi-millionaires, you see the, the growth of luxury industries, things like, I mean, the, the stereotypical ones would be things like jewellery or private jets. And when you have the proliferation of these sorts of industries, and you have a larger portion of your economy dedicated to the production of such goods, you have more workers dedicated to the production of, of those goods and services, and more physical resources, you have an economy that is constantly geared towards making productivity increases within those industries that only benefit those who can afford them. And, and, and th this, this is a phenomenon that's been like kind of widely recognized as being a cause of slowing productivity within more traditional manufacturing um, uh, in, in industries and, and just, just on, on the whole. I, I think there are some enormous issues with it. I, I don't think anyone needs that level of wealth. I don't think that you, you, you look at these billionaires and as a general rule, there may be one or two exceptions, if that. But generally, these billionaires have their wealth because they've taken advantage of the political process, because they've inherited their wealth, because they have uh, exploited their workers, or because they have have uh, control over some kind of monopoly or natural monopoly, and or uh, control over kind of network effects in the case of social media and and on um, e-commerce. So to say that these people have earned their wealth and therefore deserve that wealth in the context in a context in which that wealth directly harms our democracy and those people who they can use that wealth to oppress, I think is ridiculous. So personally, I, I think. Billionaire shouldn't like not exist. I think, as AOC said, they are a policy failure, and there should be no billionaires. Yeah. Andres. Well, Emerson makes a, a really good case of how well translates into resource allocation and production, and how they can impact a democracy overall or, or the way a country goes. I will tell you that I prefer Elon Musk making decisions in many things that just. It, waiting for people to vote on that in the U.S. Because that's the way any kind of level of polit or political system has worked ever. Whoever is close to the, to the decision-making has more influence. Are regarding wealth or regarding your influence? Uh, because you can, make the, you can make the case that in the, in the Trump administration, you have really wealthy people making decisions. You have other people that were not even as wealthy, uh, but they had a lot of influence in that. And that's just the way politics work. Work. I mean, you, you, the closest you are to make the more decisions. And I think that people, like exception of billionaires, they should be making many of those of, of those decisions. Uh, but the, the cases that that's an exception, many of the billionaires, like for example in Venezuela, the most the, the richest people in Venezuela are the people that are close to the government. They are close to the, the where the resources are. The Chavez family. In the case, uh, we, people say that they will mostly the is the, the, the biggest millionaire in the world. Well, as the Ukraine 
Russian war starts to you know, fall so more and more and more, we're still realizing that we actually, that Putin can be the, the number one billionaire in the world because he has more assets that we actually thought that he had. So the closest you are to the political system, not only can you influence it if you're wealthy, but you can become more wealthy. Uh, you had the case like, you know, for example, Obama. Obama didn't have even the, remotely the same amount of money he had before entering politics and before entering uh, the, politi- the political world. So, and I don't agree with the, with the term that billionaires shouldn't exist. I mean, uh, you can call it millionaire, billionaire tomorrow. We're, we're, we have to start calling people trillionaire and so on and on and on. I think that we should be making sure that whoever becomes a billionaire, he becomes a billionaire, not because they got incentives from the state. Bezos case, Jeff Bezos case, he has a lot of incentives coming from the election from the, from the state and a lot of contracts and a lot of things. In the case of Musk, yeah, I, I will say there's a lot of things regarding that, but he also because he, the guy managed a really successful company. And he's one of the ones pushing beyond that we have to switch to nuclear, we have to leave coal behind, that we have to switch to electrical to electrical vehicles. So that's the kind of people that are rooting for. Of course, not the kind of people that make their money directly from the state, because in the end, you're not creating you're, you're not creating wealth. You are uh, taking wealth from the from the from the people if you get your money from the state. And in that case, yes, I will agree that you shouldn't become a millionaire in in those senses. But if you create your wealth, because wealth is created, well, wealth, wealth is not limited. Uh, we, 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 there are resources, of course, that are limited, but in the case of wealth, you create wealth. You don't, you don't, you just like, uh, you, you, you don't just redistribute really the wealth, you create it. So that, that's, that's always has been the case, at least for these kind of billionaires, not for the kind of billionaires that they get away from the state. So I will go back to a point that I, I wanted to mention, but for some reason we are not talking about many other things that is also links to this as to why China is doing what it's doing in terms of climate change. It's not because they actually care about climate change or whoever wants to do that. It's because of geopolitical interests. So the same reason why you have millionaires trying to make choices in, in, the, in the higher levels of, of power is because of interest. And that's something that usually we, we, we tend to believe that can change. And I, I will illustrate that it's something that will never change. I mean, there will always be interest in politics and in terms of the states, whoever runs the country, it's either the collective or, uh, or, or uh, elite. And every kind of decision that they make is, is based on interest. So if China is trying to reduce the climate change uh, by, by switching to more energy, it's because, not because they care about the, the state and the, the state of the world. It's because they want to have the monopoly in the future of clean energies. And they want to have more power over other kind of things. So. Yeah, yeah, I will take it in a while. Don't worry. The dog is there. Can you hear the dog barking? <laughs> yeah, he's he's a socialist, so he's, he's not, not, not agreeing with what I'm saying. Yes. So, uh, but he's a bad socialist, not, not a good one like Emerson. So, yes. So, I, 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 I do agree that you can become a millionaire if you, your wealth is earned. But if you produce a really good product to the market and to that, that people need, but not if you get your money directly from the Emerson, do you have anything to say? Uh, yeah, so I I reckon that yeah you can you can make a distinction between you know different sources of wealth, but fundamentally at the end of the day, the level of wealth that you accrue, regardless of its source, still has that same negative effect on democracy. I mean, you can say that you'd rather that Elon Musk makes decisions about the economy than say a politician, and you can do that. But to me, there's no difference in saying that and supporting that kind of, a system of kind of oligopoly 
which I think that that, that would uh, qualify as, and supporting an authoritarian system such as China and, and saying there's a dictator at the top who can make these very quick decisions. Maybe they so happen to be a, an eccentric figure such as Elon Musk. Maybe they don't. Uh, maybe the billionaires who happen to have accrued their wealth through whatever means are eccentric and inspiring figures, which many people will see Elon Musk as. Or maybe they're not. Maybe they're awful people who are, are just going to be parasites and ex exploit others. So, so to say that it, it's just because there's this example of this one billionaire who people look up to, I mean, I don't, but there are people who do look up to him. I don't think justifies a system in which people like that and people people like that with that amount of wealth um, do exist. Um, I think, yeah, I mean, that, that's uh, the, the the billionaire argument. I'm sure I'm, I'm going to have something to say, but I think generally, I, I think there's there's an assumption that's that's that underlies all this, and it's that you know within the kind of capitalist neoliberal logic is those who work hardest and create wealth and for, for themselves and others uh, then reap the rewards of that and those are the people who, who become rich i think that in practice that um idea is not borne out and that those often with, with, with the greatest wealth have either exploited others in, inherited their wealth or as andres said took advantage of the political system regulation or natural monopolies that would be much more efficiently managed collectively and I, I don't know if we'll bring this back to Venezuela at some point, but I, I think that because that topic is on, uh, has been here throughout the conversation, I think that, you know, there are the, always these comparisons between, say, the US and Venezuela and the UK, Venezuela. And if you turn on Fox News for a minute, uh, especially when they might, might have been talking about Bernie Sanders or during the presidential election, Venezuela always comes up as this kind of bogeyman topic where where someone will say oh, i i, I want to spend this much on medicare for all or let, let's let's do some kind of green new deal and then the fox news host says oh but venezuela and end of conversation end of debate haha this is our trump card say aha but venezuela as if venezuela is this has become this kind of example of this kind of paradigm of socialism failing and therefore any kind of involvement of the state in providing public services or intervening in the economy is a bad thing. So I think it's it's a, it's a really important to kind of interrogate why Venezuela turned out as it is. And of course, Andres will have lots of opinions on this and is probably better informed than I am. But we, we mentioned before how, before um, Chavez came to power, that, that there was an, a prolonged period of economic stagnation and, and, and hardship. And then even throughout the kind of Chavez period from 1999 to 1998, 1999 to 2013, there, it, there, were, there were fluctuations in the kind of prosperity of the country, in the, the levels of oil revenue. And as a result of that, you know, how much could be spent on various uh, missions and public services um, and, and government spending and yeah, how, how wealthy the country was. And for me, rather than identifying socialism as this cause for, for the economic hardship and therefore kind of giving a green pass to these sort of lazy arguments that you see often in the US, but also in, 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 in the UK, you also, you also hear about it. Instead of sort of giving 
credit to these arguments that, oh, it's just a case of failed socialism and failed state intervention. Although there were some serious issues with the way that the Venezuelan state intervened in the economy, in uh, mismanaging uh, PDVSA and lots of examples that we could go into. Fundamentally, it's about a rentier state, a, a state that is significantly reliant on oil revenue and oil rents. Essentially, that you see this in in lots of cases. You see it in the case of of Russia today. You, you see it. You see it in the case of uh, Saudi Arabia, states all over the world that are reliant on natural resources of all kinds. Or oil is obviously a one of the most most common examples. Do see these fluctuations? They, they call it. I mean, the natural resource resource curse. So Venezuela, being a rentier state, lives largely of, of what can be called unearned income. There's obviously an issue with that, that phrase, um, but it's where the state is resourced with essentially oil, large surpluses from oil. And that has a, a number of really serious effects, which to me are much more descriptive when it comes to the, the case of Venezuela. So because of its reliance on a fluctuating and exogenously determined oil price, um, you see huge fluctuations in in government spending. If if you haven't obviously built in sort of structural kind of um, mechanisms to even out spending and oil revenue over time, like some countries have, notably Norway with their sovereign wealth fund, clearly Venezuela didn't have that. So so that then had um, implications for the amount of. The, the amount that the Venezuelan state could spend. So clearly during the boom times and the, the early 2000s, after the, the attempted coup, spending would increase as oil revenues increased. And then clearly with the 2008 crisis and the precipitous drop in oil revenues, that, that then preceded possibly one of the worst periods of, of, of Chavez's rule. And in, likewise, that was a trend that was seen before Chavez came to power. Chavez certainly exacerbated it with the way he treated sort of Pedavesa, the sort of uh, hollowing out of the, the Pedavesa, the state oil company, which also happened for a number of reasons. But but fundamentally, to me, it's a case of, of Venezuela being a rentier state and a state highly reliant on on oil revenues and vulnerable, therefore, to the the fluctuations in the oil market. And like, I'd be really interested to hear what your perspective on that alternative take is, Andres, um, because often it's quite binary. It's often seen as, okay, Venezuela tried socialism and it failed, rather than actually that there was this this in- incredibly large sort of factor that, that is rarely mentioned within the mainstream, say, when you turn on Fox News. So yeah, I, to, to you, to what extent does that play into the sort of the way that Venezuela has experienced the last 20 years? Yes, so you touched a lot of points, so let me try to narrow it. Of course, Venezuela suffers the Holland disease, which is like you, you depend yourself in a commodity that eventually the commodity fluctuates like, like oil does. I mean, and oil is not dependent only on your internal decisions, but it's also really high dependent on the, on the international context. I mean, we leave, uh, as soon as we nationalize the oil in the 76, we leave the, the oil boom because of the Yom Kippur War. And we were leaving the, the, the wound at that point. The, the, the Chavez had the wound because of the Iraq war. That was just prices going up like crazy. And there is also internal, not internal decisions, but collective decisions 
from the international organization of all production pro, pro, producers. So there is many reasons of, of why the, the prices change, and that's one of the reasons why you shouldn't rely just on oil. So that's the problem with one of the problems in Venezuela, that we are a rental state, that we are terrible at managing our oil rental our history. And there, even beyond Chavez was even more, there were really incredible Venezuelan thinkers that saying that, you know, we, we should all use oil to plant a seed for other kind of resources. I mean, use the money from oil to basically expand our, our other industries so we don't have to depend on oil. That has been the goal of many, many people in, in politicians in Venezuela, and no one has uh, actually achieved anything because when once you reach power and you see the, the revenue coming from oil, I mean, you just, you just focus on that. The problem with Venezuelan GDP uh, rising to the 2000s and Venezuela getting all the money from the oil the industry, that we were, we're just looking at the meta numbers. We're not looking at the, at the micro, the micro problem, the micro issues is that people never saw that in Venezuela. I mean, people, there was never a, a situation where you can say that the lowest percentage of people that were in the low income, they felt what it was, the whole, the, 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 the whole industry money coming from the boom. We never actually saw that. The way Chavez tried to picture that is that, you know, not only increasing the spending in those, in those missions that they were incredibly mismanaged and terrible, but also there were incentive, incentives like, you know, uh, we have an institution called Caribe, which we have to understand that in Venezuela, and it's not only dependent on oil, that basically happens in everything, everything that is right. The price control, currency control, those probably are one of the worst policies that can be implemented in any kind of economy. And it was implemented in Argentina, uh, and it was implemented in, in Chile, and it was implemented in, in, under Lula in Brazil, and it's implemented under Korea, in Ecuador, Evo in Bolivia, and they always... They always fail independently if you have oil or, or, or not. But in the case of Venezuela, where we had the, the, the currency controls, people were not allowed to get an X amount of, of dollars or even, or even access dollars. So the bone the, the, the in, the, in the industry of oil, it was used to give people like a, like a yearly bonus in dollars coming from Caribe, the Caribe coupon was called. So you will get that increase. Like it was around $400 per person. You will get that bonus. I and mean, usually people use that to buy things in Amazon. Of course, why wouldn't you? So that people were getting that money. And of course, you will see people, oh my God, we're getting $400 uh, a year in Christmas. And everyone was just like waiting for Christmas to get a bonus. It was completely on, it, it was completely detached from the reality that it should be. Like I said, the case in Norway, where you have the national fund. That's what I'm talking about. It's not just the policies, which are terrible. And I think that that's a strong argument to make, that it's not just because Venezuela is, is a rented state, that yes, it's a huge reason why not only Chavez, but all the governments before, after we uh, discovered oil in the early the last century, have failed, because we haven't found a way to properly use or, or make resources. But it also is a combination of terrorist policies like price control, trying to, you know, avoid people to, for increasing prices, but at the same time, inflation is just rampant and increasing and increasing. Of course, prices have to be, uh, have to change independently if you control, control them or not. Currency controls to avoid the, the, the wealthy people to take the money out from Venezuela and to leave the money with, to, to leave the country with their money. That didn't work and it's not working right now in Argentina where Fernandez is trying to implement that too. It just doesn't work. You have to allow the market to work in many other resources, and you have to intervene when it when it comes to. But it didn't work in Venezuela. Now, the, 
You also mentioned uh, Fox News. Yeah, Fox News is terrible. It's probably the worst channel in human history. And uh, Torkel Carson probably has to be the most disgusting human being that our human history has ever seen. Um, followed by Shane Hannity and, and, uh, and, and Laura. That probably is the trinity of hell. Uh, yes. Yeah, uh, you shouldn't watch Fox News after 7 p.m. It's just like, don't. Don't, don't put that channel. Uh, and that's that's an example, yes, of how not only the media, the, the right-wing media, but also many politicians here, it's like, oh my God, Venezuela, we're going to turn into Venezuela. And basically my job, what I have tried to do is to switch the conversation that it's not that, that if we elect a leftist politician, we're going to be Venezuela tomorrow and people are going to be eating garbage in the street. That's not going to happen because you don't have the same elements that happen in Venezuela. You don't have 40 years only of democracy. Therefore, you have an immature uh, citizenship in how to properly use the elements of democracy that we had in Venezuela because we only had 40 years of 200 years of history under democracy. So we didn't know how to properly use our institutions to avoid the, the power grab that Chavez had. You don't have here in the US. In the US, you have probably one of the strongest institutions in the world in terms of balancing who has the power in by many other by many other means. And you don't in the US you're not dependent on just one commodity. In the in the US you will if you don't have the military dependent on who has who has the power. There are many elements of why the US is not going to be Venezuela tomorrow if we elect AOC, which I hope never happens, but Venezuela is not going to turn to, uh, the US is not going to turn to Venezuela. So yes, many people use Venezuela as a boogeyman, but there are many similarities that we have to take a look. And that's what I try to do in my presentations. Not talk about the Venezuela under Chavez. We'll talk about the Venezuela under the, the 20 years before Chavez. That's where I see the similarities. If you are making the same mistakes that we did, uh, which is terrible spending, mismanagement, allowing uh, social problems to rise without taking a look at them and just focus on the, on the profits from the state, you're going to create the environment for someone like Chavez to appear. And when I say someone like Chavez, I don't just mean a socialist, an authoritarian overall. I mean, of course, it, you can neglect that history is, is full of authoritarians that are not only are socialists, but the authoritarians in the, in the most streams, they touch themselves. You can make the argument that Franco, uh, Mussolini, uh, Hitler, uh, Putin right now, they have elements that are pretty similar to what Chavez was, was doing, not only in terms of the populist side and the, and the state fascist side, but also in terms of many policies, socialist policies. So, I agree that Venezuela is being terribly used in many ways, but I I also like that at least the word Venezuela is used because you can see the positive, which is trying to change the perspective of refugees here in the U.S., which is one of my life goals. I mean, we will never be a, more, a welcome country to refugees if we have a right-wing country, uh, well, 50% of the population, thinking that every single thing that happens is because there is poor people coming from the border. And you switch that by entering the right wing of movement and switching the gears in the minds of people by giving the example of Venezuela. So I thoroughly enjoy that Venezuela word is used in every single media program because we can take that opportunity to make the case that refugees are not demons and that the, that the policies in Venezuela are terrible and therefore shouldn't be used in the US independently of the commodity commodities that are used in every country. But there is also a problem in the right. You can make the case that Trump was an authoritarian. He had authoritarian leanings. The case with the 2020 election, that was basically the Chavez playbook. 
in, in terms of how to try to steal an election, uh, which Chavez did because he had the means to, but Trump did it because the U.S. has a strong institutions, which Venezuela didn't. So, yes, Venezuela is used in some ways good, in some ways it's not, but that's just the way it is. In, in politics, you have to have someone to blame to or someone to make the example of, and the, the best we can do is just to get into that boat, get into cheap, and trying to to switch the conversation somewhere, somewhere or another. And I'm never afraid of that. I mean, in every kind of, of environment that I had, I, I, I don't know if you guys know Turning Point, for example, which is an organization here that is run by Kirk, Charlie Kirk, a guy that I dislike. But I, I go to a Turning Point event and I speak about how we have to welcome refugees. I mean, uh, how, you know, that the Venezuela example is terrible, but we are not going to turn into Venezuela. So you don't have to be fear mongering people that that's going to happen. I even in some places I have said that, yes, Bernie Sanders, I think, is a terrible human being. But Bernie Sanders in Germany will just be a normal social democrat. I mean, he's not a, a, a socialist demon. But we hear everything that just like seems to be leaning left. We just say it's authoritarian. Yeah, oh my God, it's, Q, it's Chavez all over again. That's not just the case. That's academically, that's that's dishonest. dishonest. That's that's not the case with Bernie and many of these people. Bernie's a terrible human being for other reasons, not because he tries to implement European kind of policies in some way or shape or form, which are not applicable to the US. That, that, that's the main problem, that the US culture is not an European culture. So I think I went beyond many points, but yeah, that's a, one of the problems with Venezuela. And yes, please, anyone that watched this, don't watch Fox News after 7 p.m. Actually, the last topic that I wanted to talk about was freedom of speech and censorship. So, Andreas, you touched upon Fox News and, you know, how they report misinformation and and how they are the worst news channel that Americans could watch. Uh, and I agree with you. But I am curious to hear your thoughts about what's happening with uh, social networks these days and how they're censoring people for their opinions Do you think that's good? Do you think that social networks should be censoring people who, you know, have unconvenient opinions? Or do you think that they should stay on the platform? Uh, and maybe there should be a new system, new design of a social network that actually promotes discourse, right? Discussions, nuance, and not just shouting at each other through Twitter. Social media is not a right. Social media is not a human right. I mean, Twitter is a private company. So if they want to ban you, they will ban you and you have no word on that. That's, that's just the case it is. I mean, for their social media, even Lennon Boss, the other day was saying, wait, you have, we have to defend freedom of speech in Twitter because that's the new public square. No, the Twitter is not a public square. Twitter is a private company, just like Facebook. They have their own guidelines and their own rules. And if you don't like them, then just go to MySpace or go to somewhere else. I mean, you can't you can go on Twitter and just say whatever you want because there are guidelines. No one has a right over Twitter unless you actually own Twitter, uh, which now Musk owns uh, more than any of us will have a wheel. And he has more say on what's going to happen in Twitter than any of us because not even the president. The president doesn't have a, any right to say what is going on in social media. So if someone is cancel on social media for saying something, we have to look at the case-by-case -case basis. I mean, why? They they were incentivizing violence, they were being racist, they were, I don't know, being xenophobic. What they were doing? Okay, we, we see the guidelines. Oh, they were going against the guidelines. Well, that's the case. They're just canceled. If you don't like it, 
You can create your own social media, like they're trying to do with Get. I don't even know how to pronounce it. Get, get, you know, the one that Trump tried to create. Well, not Trump, other people. Trump tried to create another one that is truth social. I don't remember. Well, there was Parler. So when Trump was canceled yeah, from Twitter, I think he went to Parler and then Parler was taken down by Amazon, AWS. Yeah, uh, because so they you... were just basically shouting, <laughs> shouting the same things about, you know, the elections stolen, the Democrats are satanic pedophilia party and you, you can't, you, no, you can't. And Parler and Amazon is a private company too. And if you're using Amazon servers, you yeah. can if you don't follow their guidelines. And Parler switched to another server. So, so where are money. you supposed to go then? Where is freedom of speech? Because these days, freedom of speech doesn't happen physically in a public town square where anyone can stand and speak. Well, freedom of speech happens we, online. Unless we're trying to aim to nationalize Twitter and Facebook and all of these things, then if you don't like what is going on, you go to another kind of social media. And if you don't like any social media, then I suggest you to not get a phone. I mean, my, my take on this is purely libertarian. I mean, I, I just don't see how anyone can have a, a, a right to, to force Twitter for you to use their platform. I mean, it's Twitter's platform. I mean, we, the, 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 the guidelines are pretty clear on what you can and you can't say. And I will agree that they had to reinforce it. I don't know why Maduro is in Twitter. So I don't know why the head of Saudi Arabia is in, is in, 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 in Twitter. I don't know why the Taliban are in Twitter. I mean, I don't know why any of these people are in Twitter. They shouldn't be. But of course, Twitter, like any private company, is run by people. And these people have a leaning and they tend to go more against canceling some conservatives in the U.S. than other people. But there are people that deserve to be canceled from social media. Paul Gosar, he made some pretty terrible statements. I mean, and he should rectify some statement that he did, like the, the Twitter video that he posted of Attack on Titan, the, 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 the anime. That was terrible. <laughs> you should have been banned for that. I mean, that's it, it just happens everywhere. And here's the problem. Why are conservatives still in Twitter? Why are hard Trumpers still in Twitter if, if it is so terrible? Why do they just don't go to, to the Trump social media? He created a social media. They can all just go there. Why they don't go to Parler? Why they don't go to Get? Again, I don't know how to pronounce that, that social media. Because there are no liberals in those social media. Because the whole goal of conservatives being in Twitter is to own the libs. That's the whole reason. They just want liberals to see how terrible their views are in many things, and they want to go against the liberals in their views. You need confrontation, and that's what makes Twitter so not only entertaining but successful because you have public uh, confrontation. Are there are what aren't the most popular tweets when when you see public figures confronting themselves? Uh, when you see terrible terrible views and people are oh my god, what is these people saying this? Because you have the contrast. So conservatives will never, never leave Twitter unless liberals also go to another platform because they just don't exist with, with that, with, 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 without each other. So in terms of freedom of speech, again, you don't, we don't have, a, I don't have a right for, uh, on Twitter. If I want to say something, I will use another media and companies are, they fluctuate. 20 years ago, there was not Twitter on Facebook, there was something else. And I, Pretty sure things will change in the night, in the, in the near future with something else. Other than the, the ones that are on Twitter will change with things that are starting to be the case. The ones that own Facebook will change. They, they, just like elites, they always fluctuate. So when we have to understand that we don't have a right over other people's private companies and Twitter is a private company, just like Facebook. And we don't, we don't get a say in that. And I believe that they have to reinforce their own rules to avoid all people. 
what happened in January 6th. They all organized in Facebook groups. That shouldn't happen because they were basically trying to overthrow our legitimate government in January 6th in 2020. That's kind of things that can happen, among other things. I mean, we, we saw it with ISIS. When they were posting their videos online. Do they have a, a, a right to post their own videos? Of course they don't have a right. No one has a right to post anything on social media because that's not a, that's not a human right. Uh, freedom of speech is a, is a human right, but not private companies. Now, this is not written in stone. We're, we're entering, we're in, you know, new waters. Uh, the, the, the line between social media and freedom of speech is, is blurring many, many other things. Um, this is an ongoing discussion that we're going to have to in the future of how can we reach a point where people can be more included and everything. But overall, my base, basic principle is that no one has a right for any company to, to, to force any company to do anything. In this case, student on Facebook, not even if you are the president of the United States. So let's say, you know, Elon Musk is now controlling, I think, 9.2% of Twitter. If he decides to send, you know, some propaganda and spread misinformation through Twitter, and that reaches like 300 million people that are actively using Twitter, you think that we should just let him do it? Well, I don't think that might by only owning 9.2%, that's going to be a, a, a bigger problem. I, I, I will pay to see how those meetings are going on right now in Twitter between Moss and their, all the other people. Yeah. But it's not just Elon. I mean, I, I, we focus so much on Elon. It's anyone that tries to fight misinformation. Yes, we have to stop misinformation, not just from Elon, but many other people. But we have to find the most efficient way to fight misinformation without thinking that we have our right over Twitter or Facebook. There are many ways we can try to do that. I think that we, if we start focusing more on actually speaking with people and not just trying to use Twitter, we can get a more uh, broad way to change people, views on things or why. Misinformation is everywhere. And that's a new, the new war. I mean, the new war is misinformation. How can we fight against misinformation? And I agree there has to be a way that we have to stop someone just to misinform 300 million people that eventually those 300 million people are going to make decisions either in the ballot, by voting, or by buying things as a consumer. And that makes choices. But I don't have the answer. I hope I have, I will have the answer. I just stick with the principle that we, we don't have a saying on, on Twitter because we don't have not even 0.0001% of the shares of Twitter. And if we really, really, really don't like Twitter, Let's just find a way that no one else used Twitter anymore and Twitter is going to be useless and we switch to another thing. But that's my takeaway on that. Emerson, do you think that Twitter should be government regulated? What are your takes? I agree with a lot of that. I think that the the new culture war is this uh, revolves around this idea of being cancelled, which essentially involves very right-wing people confusing their right to free speech with their right to a platform and i think that's quite dangerous i think the the vast majority of people do not have a platform i uh, i mean you, you clearly have different extents to which you have a platform you can be a host of a uh, primetime tv talk show or you can be a normal person working a normal job um, no one has a right to a platform um, just as uh, your average person on the street does not have a right to go and host uh, a primetime TV show, nor does that primetime TV show host have a right to the platform that they they currently have. That's the first thing. I don't think anyone has a right to a platform. With 
Twitter. Twitter is obviously an enormous platform. And I think the scale of it means that we do have to take this seriously. I, I mean, I think that in general, yeah, I, I agree. Twitter is is loved by conservatives for the fact that they can provoke people on it. That That's absolutely true. I think, yes, as it sounds, Twitter has that, it is regu- it's self-regulated. They have their own guidelines. But social media it is so huge and I think does comprise a large part of the public square nowadays. So for someone to be, uh, and, and as a result, these companies have a huge amount of power, of, pro- of private power. And now th- this becomes a kind of ideological point about whether or not that level of private power should be tolerated. For me, I, I get a bit worried when companies have that level of power over public life. As we discussed when, when we are talking about billionaires, I think when you have that level of power, you, yeah, you, have, you have power over democracy, over politics. And fundamentally, this is incredibly unaccountable power. They make their own guidelines and they can take people off their platform at their own will with no oversight or or public accountability or independent regulation. So so this is I, I think it I think it is worrying. I think the people who make those decisions have an enormous amount of power, too much power over our sort of collective life for for us to tolerate. But I think the 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 point where that that Andres made, I, I agree with a, a lot of what you said. I think when you talked about how if we don't like the guidelines of Twitter, we can simply move on to MySpace or Facebook, or sorry, uh, yeah, Facebook or, or some other platform. I think with social media, the, these are natural monopolies because of the network effects, whereby social media is only useful if other people are also on that same social media app. So um, what we're talking about where, where say conservatives only like Twitter because they can provoke lib- own the libs on Twitter. That's a case of Twitter only being useful for the way in which it has tons of other people on that social social network that give it these network effects so it's it's as it's as valuable as the number of people who use it and when you have that kind of dynamic you can't really have very much competition because if you would say hey i don't like like twitter i'm going to move to myspace you're going to be very lonely on my at myspace even if they do have better guidelines and um push better values the values that you you agree with say so i while I, I think that m- most of the the whole culture war around being cancellation and free speech is pretty bogus and a distraction used essentially by conservatives to draw attention away from the real issues and to kind of yeah uh, create this kind of victimhood among some incredibly privileged people who have access to enormous platforms themselves. I think. That when it comes to the private power that t- Twitter has, I think that it, I think that is worrying, and I think just as individuals should not have the power that comes with being a billionaire, I don't think you should have any individual should have the unregulated power without any oversight to control the, the sort of largest um, social media accounts, uh, social media platforms, for example. Essentially, I, I don't know where. Well, if I have strong opinions further than that, but I, I think essentially there needs to be some kind of democratic oversight because, yeah, when you have that scale of power, I think democracy is the only way of, of, of sort of regulating it. You said you want to cap billionaires' wealth, right, and power. How would you do that? How would you 
incentivize entrepreneurship innovation, you know, but then at the same time ensure that billionaires don't reach the level of, say, like Elon Musk, where you can just buy Twitter and get get power over that. So I I, I think what I was saying was the, the discussion around how much wealth it is right for any one individual to have is is legitimate. I, I think that is a legitimate discussion to have mm-hmm. because past a certain point, you have an enormous amount of influence by virtue of your wealth. Clearly, any line you draw in the sand is going to be arbitrary. Of course it is. Like, it's a yeah. sliding scale. Um, now, within the current kind of economic system, if you are going to have an economy largely based on sort of private enterprise entrepreneurship is a part of that and if you're going to stick with the current paradigm then yes you do need a level of entrepreneurship and business and private investment blah 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 mm-hmm. and and with that you need some kind of incentive now i mean if you're gonna genuinely kind of work out what elon musk's incentive is it i i wouldn't say it's for him to earn another billion billion pounds no i, I don't think he, he i don't think I think his wealth at this point is pretty much completely detached from the hard work he puts in. It's simply, it, it, his wealth is basically a, a result of the, the shares he owns, either going going up or down, which is largely a result of ex- external things that he doesn't really have very much control over. So I think that this, this idea that if we cap so someone like Elon Musk's wealth, that he will then no longer be motivated to do the things that we want him to do, that's assuming that he's doing things that we want him to do. Take someone like, I mean, I, I would argue, like, he's probably not. I, I, at this point in time, investing tons into SpaceX is not particularly good when we're faced with, like, um, you know, runaway climate change. Likewise, I'd say someone like Jeff Bezos, uh, union busting, spending millions and millions on union, union busting consultants is not a particularly socially useful pursuit. So, like, I, even that assumption I'd, I'd question. But let's let's say for the sake of argument that they're doing things we want them to be doing. and where within the current paradigm, whereby that is the only way by which things are done, these these businessmen and business people and entrepreneurs starting up business and through private investment uh, creating wealth, um, if we're going to stay within that paradigm, which I wouldn't accept, but if we were, then I think they're incentivized, frankly. I don't think Elon Musk is incentivized by the money he makes because once you earn that much money, how much more welfare do you get by an extra billion? I, I think almost almost none. Uh, he, they have more wealth than they'll ever be physically able to spend in, in any one lifetime. Um, they're motivate, motivate, motivated by other things. So I don't think that would be a problem, even if you do accept the assumptions, which I don't, that we should stay within that paradigm. But but fundamentally, if we're going to draw the line somewhere, like where do you cap wealth? It's going to be arbitrary. Because... And how? It's not about where, it's about how. If you own shares, like do you just stop the price going up? Um, I, I you know, mean, what do you do I, with it? Th- I, I guess there are, there are ways you could do it. I I I, I think you tax equity. Yeah, um, yeah. Wealth tax taxes, wealth. wealth taxes, progressive income tax. Although obviously these people don't they don't have income that. and they don't sell right. their shares. So so exactly. So so it'd be some kind of wealth tax. I I don't know exactly. I haven't thought through any details. But but I'm just saying that's a very legitimate conversation for a society. Have yeah. How rich should we allow? Rich should we allow people to be? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Cool. Andres, any any point to that? I will say that, yeah, it's pretty, it's, it's pretty hard to 
to restrict how well the shares and assets are, which is basically how these millionaires are. I mean, they don't make their money in income. And that's why they can evade many, many other taxes because their money is not directly from, from the income. I keep the same thing about the, not just the social media overall, but power. It's like how we, we, we have tried forever to limit power. At some point in history, power was only among those closer to the state when the state was not around, but the federal system, those around the, the central manager power. Now we're in a, in a dynamic where power is shared in some way, shared or not, or form between the ones in the, in the, in the state, the head in the state, the ones in the, in the private industry, uh, and by private industry, not just the tech companies, but many other kind of companies playing a power dynamic that, that that's just the way things are. And it doesn't matter if we are living in a socialist communist or capitalist state, elites are always going to exist. I mean, even in a, in a socialist country like Venezuela, there is an elite. The elite closer to power, the military elite, uh, the oil elite, and the, the state elite. In places like China, you have the, the capitalist elite, but they're completely in, subjugated to the, the, the ones in the communist party elite. There's always elites. I mean, and that's something that I keep close to myself always, that elites are never going to disappear. And if we want truly to change the way a society works, is to influence the elites or becoming an elite ourselves. There's no just there's just no other way. Power in reality, power doesn't come from the from below to top to the top. It comes from the top to below. And the below, yeah, we the people, yeah, we have some saying uh, we can play around and do this and do like that. And we try to do that with votes. And that's why in the US at least, yes, we the people have a strong saying in many things, but it doesn't have in many other things. And if they should or not, that's a whole different conversation. I think we don't have a saying in how Elon manages industry or not. But we do have a saying in how he gets the money from the tax from the tax deductions or not, because that's the, the, the people's money. That's not directly his money. Now he's making millions because he's making amazing products, not only with Tesla, but what he's making with with and what he's going to make with, for example, I, I forgot the program with that that is going to connect our, our neurons with with some kind of, of chip. That's gonna be amazing. I mean, and usually these kind of technological advances, they don't come from state powers or, or elite powers, they come from entrepreneurs, they come from from tech companies. If you look at the overall timeline, then I mean society since the industrialization in the in the in the century before, we had going up and up in the quality of life and the, in the in the tech and how we have just revolutionized how humanity is as evolved to a point where we're having these discussions in people making uh, characters uh, digital characters in a in a web page which was unthinkable many many decades ago and it's gonna be probably a joke in 20 years from now we're gonna have something different and that's the way it's gonna be and I think that. That's my mantra. My, 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 my dogma is that for the sake of human evolution and human just reaching the point where we're basically going to have the full say in anything that has to do with humanity, even to the point that we're going to choose to live or die and just die is going to be a choice that's dependent on these tech elites and other kind of elites making the advances of genius people getting the resources that they have. And not because a state wants to have the resource or not, because geopolitically speaking, you know, a state doesn't have to make too much investment in this kind of, of a, a technological advances that are going to improve human quality. 
that comes directly from the private from the private companies because the state only follows their own interests. Private companies follow their interests, like Musk. I don't think Musk is following interests by money Twitter because he wants to be richer. I, mean, I, I have no idea, no intention to believe that that's the case. He just wants to increase his influence and he wants to buy Twitter. Um, or even probably he just was mad about something and just woke up one day and buy 9.2% because he can't. And yeah. that's the way it is. Uh, we, we can't because we don't have the world. So there's many reasons why they do what they do. And I tend to believe that I prefer them to agree more with probably the reasons why Moss wants to do something or not, which in the end is his own interest than the interests of the ones that are in the state. Because let's not fake it. I mean, we can change the way we vote. We can do it like in Venezuela, which was a direct democracy kind of way when you, had, when you were voting directly and you have several levels of power. In the end, the, the people that reach power, they're making the choices. And that's just the way it is. I mean, we either get involved in the process and try and eat the toast uh, of us that we really are interested in the subject and we have ideas or anything, we get directly involved in the process and trying to achieve the power to, to make the influence, or we just move to Mars and make another, uh, a new human being or something like that, because that's, that's just the way it is. I mean, it doesn't matter how we chose people, the ones who reach power are the ones that, 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 that make the decisions. And the best we can do is try to choose the better, the better people or being those people ourselves. And we have been pretty bad at choosing who are the ones that reach power. But the power comes from the top. And the, the, the influence comes from the top. It doesn't come from the, from, the, from, the, from the below. So the answer is to create selfless robots <laughs> who will follow hey maybe that's gonna be the case yeah we're gonna reach an i robot kind of like a movie kind of situation i i, I honestly i mean i'm i'm so eager to see how the future is gonna look like it's gonna be like like i don't know what's the name of this of this punk i forgot the name of the of the video game i don't know it's gonna, it's gonna be like iRobot. yeah cyberpunk is gonna be a cyberpunk kind of way where we, where we have outskirts and you know really corporate huge corporate kind of business running the running the things yeah it's gonna be an iRobot. how is it gonna be i mean and and that goes directly to my my belief that humans are meant to be godlike that's the, that's the reason where we are in this world just to achieve unthinkable limits because that's the way that it is you imagine reaching a point where just like what we're trying to reach and in Israel they just they, they did it a few months ago to to reach a point where we can create organs and we can choose to live or not probably most people are going to choose to die because hey if you're going to live forever without seeing your relatives that's going to be depressing but that's going to be a choice conservatives will hate that and even some liberals will hate that but I honestly don't care. I think that the, the humans are going to reach a point where we have going to have full control of everything. And that's going to include climate change. I do, well, we didn't went too deep into that. I would love to do a podcast just on that, but I do believe that the end, end result to own the, the problems in climate change is coming from the ad, uh, technology, technological advances, the private company, not from the state. The state can mitigate it and it should mitigate many of the, of the problems, but the end result is going to come from the private companies and the tech industry just advancing and advancing to a point where we're not going to rely on any, basically on anything other than, than nuclear and, and solar or something even beyond that we don't even are aware of. Mm-hmm. And that's it. Amazing. So my last question to you both is, what is your message to younger generations? Most of my listeners are people in their 20s. So what is your message to them? What should they do 
you know, to make the world a better place, what what is your message? Yeah, Anders, you want to start? Yes. Read a lot. Don't see too much media. But beyond just reading and seeing something, it's just interact with people. I mean, if if we become more empathetic toward each another, things will be so much different in the terms of level of power. If we actually understand how a small policy can completely destroy thousands or millions of people, if we actually understand how empathy is so important, solidarity and these kind of values that you have to just interact with people, interact with people that don't think like you, you know, have socialist friends, have capitalist friends, please don't have terrorist friends or fascist friends, even, I don't know, Nazis friends, but read about those people. I mean, read about how someone like Hitler became Hitler, how someone like Elon Musk became Elon Musk. Read, read about people. I mean, when we understand humans and we don't just see wealth or we see power, we see all of that, at least in our level, in our, our basic level of influence, our most immediate level of influence, when we actually understand that human beings are beings that are, that have an identity, we can change, change so much in, in, our, in our, our, our influence. I think that that's the main problem here in the U.S. When it comes to immigration, we, we, we don't see refugees as people. We see them as a number. We see them as, as something bad. We see them as uh, they're, uh, and actually that's a socialist uh, idea that the more they came, there's going to be less wealth because wealth is limited. It's limited, but it's not. The more people we have, the more wealth we're going to have because wealth is created and it's exponentially limitless. So I think that the more we understand how the people we even walk in the street, they have their own backgrounds and they have a whole history behind them that makes them be who they are. And we understand that. And that is not just our view that the world is going to be a better place. I mean, independently of theories, it's just recognizing each other will make this world a better place. And then you go into the theories and you can be a socialist or a capitalist or whatever, but it, at least have the common level of understanding that there is people beyond you that have different views and they have a reason to having those views. And instead of just calling their uh, idiots or ignorance, let's just try to understand why they are who they are and trying to understand who you are before judging other people. Well said, Emerson. Uh, I mean, I guess I'm in my 20s, so I don't really know. If For your generation, advice. I'm going to amend the question. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I think that, that, I mean, there's a book called Generation Left. This current upcoming generation, millennials and Gen, Gen Z, are the most left-wing progressive generation that I think we've seen in a very, very long time. Because my generation, your generation, are faced with a number of challenges and yeah, challenges that are a direct result of the mode of production that we currently live under. So whether whether or not that's about housing, not being able to get on a, on a housing ladder, paying 60% of your income on rent, whether it's despair in the face of climate change, there are so many issues. I mean, war currently. And I, I think that, uh, yeah, young people are at the forefront of organising against those issues together. They recognise the, the power of solidarity and collective action rather than this sort of lionization of certain individuals billionaires for example i i that's something that i that i i'm not not a fan of at all this kind of fandom around certain 
individual billionaires like they're some kind of godlike figure elon musk is obviously the, also the our celebrities yeah like actors yeah. singers yeah sure i mean i i think that in in the absence of sort of collective solutions and collective hope people turn to these sort of messiah-like figures like um elon musk that you know people are genuinely convinced that elon musk is going to come up with some technology that's going to save humanity from climate yeah. change and some people believe that and that's fine i i don't and i think that it's hopeful thinking to say the least but i, I think it's fundamentally dangerous when we don't recognize that this this the solutions to the problems that we all face are going to be collective and anyway yeah that that, that that's essentially essentially yeah but uh, but i think that yeah generation generation z and millennials fundamentally are on board with that agenda amazing cool well thank you both for this great discussion it was fun i really really enjoyed it and i think i could talk about this forever we all could right it's a it's an endless yes. conversation we, we um, touch a lot of subjects that can make a whole podcast by themselves yeah exactly so yeah thank you thank you for coming Thank you for listening to this discussion. If you enjoyed it, make sure to follow the podcast to hear about new episodes. You can also find me on Instagram or Twitter under Think with Lucy. Let's highlight the gray area that is often overlooked. Let's show nuance. Let's think.